Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Aruki Uran, and today I will be interviewing Alfred Bustanov on his new book, Muslim Subjectivity in Soviet Russia, The Memoirs of Abdel Majid Al-Qadri. Uh, the book was published in 2022 by Brill Publishers, and it tells uh, rather a dramatic story of Abdel Majid Al-Qadri a Muslim individual born in Kazakhland and brought up in various Muslim environments of the South Urals. Uh, Dr. Bustanov is an esteemed assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam and the principal investigator of the European Research Commission project titled Mind the Muslim Individual in Imperial and Muslim Russia. With his expertise in the field of history, and I would even assume Islamic studies, Dr. Bustanov has published extensively on the past and present of Islam in Russia, including the history of Muslim subjectivities and Soviet Orientalism. Um, I think Dr. Bustanov really deserves to be congratulated on finding this memoir, and we'll talk about that in a second, and also very ably to translate it. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bustanov. It is truly an honor to have you here with us. Thank you, Aruka. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, I guess before delving into the discussion about the book, um, could you please give our listeners a brief introduction to yourself and your background uh, for us to really get a better sense of what experiences have shaped your current research? Sure. Uh, well, I was born in Omsk, which is a city in Western Siberia, and I'm the first generation of uh, Siberian Tatars who uh, yeah, lived in the sea because all of my ancestors uh, lived in the um, uh, in villages um, of the region, and um, our family comes from the environment of uh, Siberian Bukharans, so those uh, individuals who traveled from multiple places of Central Central Asia um, in the 17th century and the 18th century to Siberian um, towns and villages to spread Islam and to do um, uh, trade. So this is my ancestry. And uh, the history of the family and what I saw back in the village probably made an, an, made it quite an impact on me. And uh, I wanted to be a historian uh, um, since quite early on. Um, and I, I received my degree from the history department at Omsk University. There I uh, started to learn Arabic and uh, became interested in manuscripts because it was our habit at the university to go to annual expeditions to the remote areas uh, where the Tatars live. And already back in 2005, um, during my first um, uh, expedition of this kind, I encountered yeah, uh, Arabic script manuscripts in the field. And that was 
really an emotional experience for me. Shocking, I would even say. So uh, I, <laughs> I remember myself um, uh, looking at these books, uh, feeling that this is something like part of me, and but but I don't understand anything, and nobody around me understands anything. So we the, the people just keep keep them as a holy objects. Um, and they still continued their occult practices uh, related to these uh, things, but nobody could really read them and tell the story. And since then, since that year and since that day when I first saw these things, these uh, books and these objects, and the mainly ladies uh, who kept um, the manuscripts, I decided for myself that I have to yeah, devote my life, even though it, it sounds weird, but I decided to devote my life to uh, to the study of these um, histories and stories that surround uh, the manuscripts. So um, that was a long kind of uh, story afterwards that I continued my travels and to the village, villages, talking to people, collecting these manuscripts, uh, studying them and learning languages, trying to understand what, what's going on out there. And I, I wanted to uh, get a, a supervisor somewhere, who uh, could be uh, would help me with uh, writing a thesis on these things? Um, in Omsk, we had a, a group of um, ethnographers who were interested in my work, but couldn't really help me with the contents of, of, of manuscripts. Right uh, in Tabulsk, which is also a Siberian town, um, I got to know uh, an established colleague of mine, also an ethnographer, Igor, Igor uh, Belich. Uh, who had um, years and years of experience of field work among the Siberian Tatars, and our collaboration grew into true uh, friendship. Um, but um, um, I continued my um, journey um, and, and and looking for the supervisor in Kazan and in Saint Petersburg. Uh, at one time, I, I consulted. Uh, uh, well, orientalists such as uh, Sergei Klistorny and Smirka Simusmanov and asked them to be my supervisors, but they told me that they are too, too, too old. They were in their 80s already at that time. And um, uh, one of them told me that there is, um, you, better, you better look uh, in Europe. And indeed, uh, by some miracle, I got a fellowship back in 2008 in Germany uh, to study German language. And there I asked our colleagues uh, in Germany, um, just, you know, sent around emails asking who is interested in the history of Islam in Siberia. And they told me that maybe Michael Kemper, uh, Mikhail Kemper, uh, who only started but at that time his uh, tenure at the University of Amsterdam, he might be interested. So with uh, some five euros in my pocket, I uh, went to Amsterdam, met uh, Kemper there, and yeah. Uh, that was the story of um, the start of a long story of our collaboration and friendship. And indeed, then I um, became part of the research uh, research uh, project on the history of Soviet Orientalism, um, which was not exactly uh, Siberian manuscripts uh, or Tata history or anything close to it. But um, I'm really grateful that I could join this project because it really gave me uh insights on the conceptual 
thinking about uh, the uh, history of Islam in Eurasia more broadly. So I wrote my first book on the uh, history of Orientalism in Soviet Kazakhstan and the way how their uh, historical image uh, changed over um, over the Soviet era from the uh, complete yeah, complete um, nomadic population that was the predominant uh, image of, of this um, uh, people um, into uh, the urban settlers, uh, which was done uh, uh, thanks to archaeological investigations and uh, the study of uh, very peculiar peculiar studies of um, uh, written sources. So yeah, um, that's a, that's kind of a very extensive um, narrative of of my life. But uh, this this is just a, 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 the way how I got where where I where I stand now. Um, yeah. And this this is I, I find your story really fascinating. Um, and I guess your current project is also very much related to the project Mind. Can you tell a little bit about the project Mind? Sure. Um, well, at some point, I had to leave uh, the University of Amsterdam um, simply because uh, my contract as a PhD student was over, and I uh, went to Kazan uh, for the first time because. Um, after receiving my um, doctoral um, certificate and degree, I thought, well, now I have to apply my uh, knowledge mm, for the study of the real thing. So the biggest collection of um, Islamic manuscripts in Russia uh, is located at the uh, university library in Kazan. And uh, I entered the library uh, simply as a librarian with very small uh, salary and um, maybe uh, uh, I could have, um, yeah, just stayed there for the rest of my life. Uh, but um, a year after, in 2014, I received an invitation to be a professor, full professor of Islamic studies at the, at the European University in St. Petersburg. So uh, there um, I developed my interests further. And since I heard uh many times uh, in St. Petersburg stories about life writing and the study of eager documents and Soviet history and the way how the, the Bolsheviks wrote their autobiographies in the 1930s. I remember, I remember Eagle Halfing being around all the time and uh, uh, other important uh, colleagues who um, studied Soviet subjectivity. And uh, looking at their fascinating work and comparing that uh, to my own uh, field notes and the manuscripts at hand, I thought, well, why, why don't we study Muslim subjectivities? And um, I uh, developed this idea further and wrote an application for the uh, ERC. And uh, by some miracle, I received this uh, studying grant for, um, for five years of um, in-depth study of um, uh, Muslim eager documents and uh, autobiographies and even private archives um, uh, in, in, in Russia. So we have Shaim uh, Khalif, our esteemed colleague as, as, a, as a postdoc, who has finished now his uh, wonderful um, uh, masterpiece on uh, um, the private archive and uh, personality of Muhammad Said Saidov. Uh, who was the founding father of Arabic studies in Dagestan. Uh, um, we also have two PhD students, uh, Galia and Mansour. Uh, Galia is writing a PhD on uh, the history of Muslim visuality in Soviet times. 
and uh, draws on a several um, huge um, photo, photo, photographic archives that she discovered. And Mansour is writing his uh, thesis on the history of Muslim autobiography um, in the late 19th and the early 20th century. So we, in our work, we are trying to um, make this shift uh, from uh, the legal history and the social history that was more um, widespread among um, among in scholarship uh, b- before towards uh, the personal history um, of um, an individual history of uh, Muslims um, in in the region, mm-hmm. paying um, more attention to uh, emotions mm-hmm. and the worldview. Mm-hmm. I really want to tease out the things you have mentioned here about this project, as it is very kind of closely related to the project that this book aims to do, which is really bringing up front the discussions about Muslim subjectivity in Soviet Russia, uh, which is why I want to move forward and ask, how did you find this memoir uh, of Abdul Majid Al-Qadri? And perhaps you can talk a little about Viner Usmanov, who is the co-author of this book, but unfortunately could not join us today. Um, yeah, I mean, how how really how was the process of finding translating and writing this book? Yes. Well, first of all, um, we are grateful to uh, Vinyar Usmanov for discovering this uh, manuscript in the private archive of Zuhra Valiulova in, Uf- in Ufa. So, so um, Zuhra Hanum is uh, the fourth generation, no, the third, the third generation after uh, um, uh, Al-Qadri. So her mother was the daughter of um, Abdul Majid Al-Qadri, and it is Zuhra Hanum who is now keeping the actual manuscript and some photographs that are left from the author. And uh, there was some mm, personal connection between uh, Vinerabi and Zuhra Hanum. And uh, since my interest in Soviet history of Islam was uh, known to Vinerabi and our colleagues, so he just showed me the manuscript and asked whether I'm interested and maybe we can do something together. And indeed, <laughs> we did so. Um, you can see uh, the, the book and the translation. Um, honestly, uh, at the beginning, when uh, starting to read the book, uh, the the manuscript, I didn't realize uh, its importance. I thought, okay, yet another pilgrimage accounts, you know, uh, the usual sometimes boring stuff that we already know about uh, Muslims traveling and this uh, inter, 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 um, international, interregional connections and networks, connectivity, you know, these catch words that we already kind of got used to um, thanks to, um, yeah, the work that is already out there. And I thought, well, well, what can we contribute by studying this particular piece? But then, uh, when I saw more and more of um, Al-Qadri's telling about his um, feelings, how how he uh, experienced really the world ab- around him and how he described his life through the lenses of the Quran and uh, the verses uh, um, uh, of the revelation and his religious way of describing him, himself and explaining of what was going on at every stage of his life, I was um, getting more and more interested and, and, and thought uh, maybe uh, 
the, maybe um, how how to how to um, think about this um, manuscript and this life story, how to contextualize it, and maybe there are similar sources out there. And um, well, while translate while translating the book into English, I thought, well, maybe I should write a separate book um, on the. Uh, on the memoirs and, and publish the memoirs separately only with some commentaries. But eventually uh, I ended up uh, combining the two because I thought if I do these two separate uh, volumes, then it might take forever uh, because first of all, um, the memoirs, their content is bigger uh, in itself than what I um, have to say about them. You can you can go into details about the Hajj, the pilgrimage literature, the um, um, uh, the worldview, the networks, Sufism, um, and many other things. So that it might take you know it might be a, a project um, uh, for much longer time than it, than it took me. And actually, uh, um, the publication process took us four years, approximately, together with uh, writing the introduction and translation, all of that. So uh, I thought maybe it's better to just re uh, uh, give the readers uh, the text with some contextualization, and then I follow up with um, articles and maybe another book that will uh, show the richness of um, other similar sources that are out there in the private archives and 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 would um, show this multiple mul multiple uh, voices that are out there, not only of uh, male, such as Abdul uh, Qadri, um, Abdul Majid Al Qadri himself, but all the, all, also um, female voices, the keepers of these uh, archives in the 20th century, and uh, those women who wrote uh, diaries and autobiographies themselves and composed uh, private archives. Um, so this is something for the future. Uh, but with uh, with the memoirs of, of Al-Qadri, we, we really see and, and can feel um, the experience of a person who, as you told us indeed, had a very dramatic um, experience of living in, in late imperial and early Soviet times. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure at this point our listeners are really interested in who is this personality and your approach to studying this personhood is really based on some sort of historiographical anthropology where you really put forward the the perspective emotions and feelings of people being studied and um, even in your book you kind of emphasize this importance of their uh, quote vernacular forms of self-expression um, and I really find the memoir is extraordinarily interesting that it gives us this glimpse of Muslim cosmic life and their point of view in of, of their Soviet Russia and I think this is something of a rare study and we'll come to that question later on um, that being said why don't we talk about Abdul Majid Al-Qadri himself where was he born what kind of personality did Al-Qadri embrace in his life story that's right uh, well he tells everything about it in his book uh, first of all he as you told us already he was born in the context of uh, in the environment of the Kazakh land uh, and it's uh, nomadic uh, population in the eastern part of the Kazakh steppe. Um, his father was a, a teacher, uh, 
Muallim Sibian, as uh, they refer to him, the teacher of, of, of um, yeah, um, of young kids. And um, um, he also traveled uh, in the area. Um, and eventually, when um, uh, Abdul Majid Qadri uh, was born, they decided to settle in Esterlibash, which is uh, a Tatar Muslim settlement in South Urals. Um, I've been there um, several times. It's quite a beautiful place, um, uh, which is now part of uh, Bashkiria, Bashkortostan, um, the, the autonomous republic in Russia. And uh, what was really mm, cool about this place before uh, the 20th century is that for a long time, uh, this was a regional center of Sufism of Najbandia Mujadidia with the roots going back to Bukhara and um, Kabul. So um, that was really uh, a Sufi place. And uh, Abdul Majid al-Qadri writes um, in his book about uh, his um, um, uh, personal relations with uh, the uh, families of Ishans, the Sufi masters uh, in this uh, place. And um, he also had a, a teacher um, uh, from Yelpaktal, um, another uh, Sufi center nearby in, in the Kazakh steppe. And we see that in his earlier um, um, career, in his early life, he was really closely connected with uh, the Sufi leaders, Sufi authorities. But uh, as many of um, his contemporaries, he... I don't want to say became hostile, but he he took distance from the Sufi roots and and the Sufi uh, profile. He wanted to do his own thing. And at a certain point, uh, he claims that he wants to go to Medina, the Radiant, um, to memorize the Quran and to um, experience the, the place where the Prophet lived. So um, he borrowed some money and went on to Hajj and stayed in, um, in Medina for several years, received their uh, certificates, ijazas, in uh, Quran recitation, which also became quite a fashion uh, in those days, uh, I, I want to say. Because um, before the early 20th century, it was not that fashionable among uh, the Muslims of Russia to go to the Near East for study. Uh, Bukhara and other Central Asian um, towns and, and, and uh, places were more popular. And this also tells us about the shift in cultural orientation. I write about it uh, um, in the book and, and some other articles, building um, mainly on uh, the observations by Alan Frank on the rise and fall of Bukhara and prestige for the Muslims of Russia. And this is kind of the continu continuation of this story. So when uh, the, the Bukharan prestige declines by the uh, late 19th and the early 20th century, what is it that they, they discover? Then comes my book. And actually I described this type of personality that uh, Abdul Majid al-Qadri really wanted to uh, embrace. And uh, I use the concept from literary studies, the concept of persona, to um, uh, talk about two, um, two, two forms um, of self-expression self 
that of self, uh, self suppression that Al Qadri uh, uh, writes about in his memoirs. So, first of all, he writes about himself as a Qari, so the professional reciter and, and specialist in, uh, in the Quran. And this is what he really wanted to be. He consciously went to Medina to, um, um, uh, to reach this status and to go back to Russia and to recite the Quran and um, be the um, embodiment, the living embodiment of the Holy Word. And, and that explains a lot why he um, tells the story of his life through the lens of the Quran. So that's one part of his uh, self-image. Another part of his self-image or type of his self-image is Mazlum. That is uh, someone who was unjustly treated by um, the government. And uh, uh, he spent 15 years of his life in prison, in uh, multiple labor camps, uh, first in Salafki in the north, and then near Tashkent, uh, in the south. So in the 1930s, Al-Qadri had to go to Salafki in the north, and in the 1940s, he was imprisoned near Tashkent and spent some 10 years in, in prison. So one of the main reasons, I believe, uh, for Al-Qadri to write this book of memoirs was his attempt to leave uh, after himself the true history of his life. Because, as I said, initially, he wanted to be a Qari, he wanted to be a reciter of the Quran and he wanted to um, do something good for his community and to be a pious Muslim. But because of the repressions, because of um, this unjust um, um, handling of, him, of himself, um, he, couldn't, he couldn't complete his mission and couldn't uh, develop his uh, initial persona further. And that's why this book. So he shows these two stories, two uh, sides of his life, one uh, full of uh, hope and another one full of personal drama and uh, tragedy that he experienced uh, out there. And um, actually, I believe this is one of the few rare and, and certainly the most extensive uh, uh, narrative of uh, Muslim clergy um, in uh, in prison. So uh, he really he, he describes in detail um, what he did, how he moved around uh, while in labor camps, uh, how he, how he was treated, and, and things uh, like that. So um, again, um, it's quite everything what he says. Uh, is really emotional and uh, he provides details all the time on the way how he lost friends, how people whom he knew before they were simply killed. And uh, what is striking though, striking is that um, even though he says uh, it's a sad story that he had to go through the, the Stalinist repressions and that he lost uh, many friends there, uh, he says that, first of all, it is the will of God. Uh, it couldn't be otherwise. Uh, and the second thing is that um, he says, well, yes, I, I had to go through this dramatic 
uh, situation, but I do not blame the government. I do not blame the Soviet system because in the end, uh, it's uh, okay because my family is in peace. Uh, all my kids receive their education. They have their good jobs and everything is fine. So basically he writes these <clears throat> lines, the final lines of his uh, book in the 19, in, in 1955, 1956, already after the death of Stalin. And um, I mean, on the one hand, you can say, oh, he was afraid uh, of being punished if he uh, criticizes the government. But please, uh, this is a narrative in the Arabic script Tatar. And even his descendants, his immediate uh, descendants were unable to read the book even though he uh, addresses the audience uh, in his manuscript he from time to time he says oh dear reader or he, or he says the villagers will will learn from my book this and in that or my family will appreciate me writing this but in fact um uh, there is there was not much of uh, audience for this book after the death of um, al-qadri himself and which is also peculiar because <clears throat> Mariam Kadyrova, his daughter, she also wrote a, an autobiography um, uh, in the 1990s, and uh, she wrote it in Russian with lots of photographs. While uh, Al Kadri's um, uh, memoirs, they are there is it's just a book of uh, of handwriting. There, there are no photographs, even though he liked to be photographed. He decided not to include them, which is quite peculiar. And in um, in Mariam's autobiography, we see that she was really she didn't he, she didn't refer or use the um, um, the information from uh, from from the manuscripts, and uh, she even misconceptualized the memoirs as uh, his reminiscences on his Gulag experiences only. So there is a note uh, on the book by Mariam where she says that this is a dnivnik uh, or a diary by her father on the Gulag experiences which is not really accurate it is not the diary because it was written after uh, his release from prison and uh, it is a book that um, rather explains his life and, and, and uh, tries to do something of the sort of rehabilitation uh, but from uh, his own perspective, Rehabilit rehabilita not that much of a personal rehabilitation, but rehabilitation of the kind of worldview that he himself and his generation used to have. Okay, and, and the kind of worldview that had, unfortunately, very little to do with uh, with the cultural models that were familiar to even his daughter. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting that you're saying that there's there wasn't really no audience. I mean, was it some sort of like this relief? What was the purpose of writing? And um, I mean, what cultural, so social or even religious context is assumed or established in the memoir? That's a great question, because um, in many cases, uh, beyond the European or westernized uh, environments, writing about yourself 
uh, is not that widespread in a way. There are not no uh, immediate um, recognizable genres of life writing that we could simply uh, say, oh, this is autobiography as we know it from uh, the European context of the 19th century or things like that. Um, and I can imagine that there were many people uh, in the Soviet Union and also in, in, in the Russian Empire who could have uh, told us many things about their lives and it was, it was worth it. But they decided to keep silent, not because they were um, afraid or something, but simply it was not customary or they did something else. They wrote poetry, for example, or they would collect manuscripts and those manuscripts will, would uh, mirror their personal interests and experiences. But with Al-Qadri and some other um, people of his generation, it became more common uh, so that some of them wrote uh, diaries, such as uh, um, um, Galimjan al-Barudi, for example, he wrote diaries, uh, or uh, Aliya Karmushava wrote diaries and, um, and reminiscences about her life in the late 19th century, uh, eastern part of the Kazakh steppe. And um, for um, uh, Al-Qadri, in a way, at that time, it was already uh, a, a custom, a, an, avail an available model and um, a genre of writing that was okay to uh, kind of a literary frame that you could use uh, to talk about yourself. So that is one side of it. And another, um, he really felt the need um, because I also believe, yes, that um, the psychological side of it is also there. Right. Uh, treatments in the sense of uh, uh, telling to your imagine, imagined audience all the pain that you felt uh, uh, inside. Um, but still, what is um, what we have to keep in mind in this uh, sense is that uh, any book of um, of this sort is not simply a sum of facts, and we shouldn't, I guess, I guess uh, simply refer to these autobiographies and reminiscences for facts, for historical facts that happened uh, sometime uh, in the past. But rather, it is more interesting to see, to, to take the subjectivity uh, seriously and um, uh, listen to their heart in the way uh, and um, try, try to understand in what way they are writing subjectively about their own past. And one example how and this can be done is the growing realization uh, in scholarship that biographical dictionaries that we have uh, on uh, the mm, biographies of scholars in uh, uh, inner Russia are composed by such individuals as uh, Riza Fakhreddinov, Shahabuddin al-Marjani, Murat Ramzi, and others are also not some objective uh, um, uh, collections of uh, truth but rather the battlefields and uh, competitive narratives of interested groups who try to construct their own vision and legitimate their, their um, respective lineages and um, uh, groups that, uh, of, of, uh, of elites and to uh, really cement their authority. Um, 
those of those of you who might be interested in uh, such a view on uh, on the biographical dictionaries, you can see the recent work by Daniel Ross, her book uh, "The Tatar Empire," as well as some um, recent articles by Michael Kemper, who is now working on the English translation of the third and the fourth volumes of Athar, that is the masterpiece, the, the biographical dictionary by Riza Fakhreddinov, where you also can see, um, yeah, the subjective treatment by the author of biographies that he that he wanted to include, exclude, edit, um, portray in a certain way, highlight uh, in, 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 a, in, in, a, in a manner that he found appropriate due to his vision of, uh, of Islam uh, from the time and place where he, where he belonged. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems uh, you're, you're really kind of doing this historiographical and methodological intervention in studying these ego documents. Uh, what is the conceptual framework of this book? Um, and you, you've also kind of showed or um, compared it into this like a battlefield. What models um, Abdul Majid al-Qadri he had uh, in mind when kind of structuring the book of his life? Oh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> I told you once that mm, the memoirs are bigger than what I have to say about them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, our project, uh, my project uh, on Muslim individuality is bigger than this particular case. Right? But for the project, we uh, at some point ended up with a conceptual scheme uh, with four stages. A conceptual framework that we are applying in study of um, multiple cases uh, um, in um, life writing and and ego documents. Let me tell you what it is. It is also part of this book, and you can find it in some of my my other writings. So um, first of all, we have this, uh, the highest level of abstraction, which we call the cultural repertoire. It is everything, all possible ways of being, and writing and thinking that were available theoretically to individuals at a certain point of time and place, right? Everything that was before and current also at that time. Sufism, um, philosophy, Russian schools, multiple languages, um, writing, hearing, dancing, occultism, whatever. All the possible forms of existence and thinking that were out there, right? And you can imagine that, of course, uh, nobody uh, can uh, uh, exercise uh, with all of this uh, cultural repertoire simultaneously. You have to decide, um, you have to make choices, right? And, and also objectively, you cannot have access to all of it because th- things do not survive. Things um, can be represented in certain forms that that the audience perceives as outdated, backward, uh, don't like the language, don't know the language, and things like that, okay? But still, this uh, the highest level of abstraction is out there. And the second, more concrete, is at the level of models. That is, um, um, the, mm, uh, the fashion of being a certain type of person, right? I, uh, for example, at some point, 
uh, the legal vision of uh, Islam uh, and legal subjectivity, the legal subject, becomes more uh, fashionable and more authoritative than any other version, than esoteric sub subjectivity or Sufi uh, forms of subjectivity and others, right? And these models, they change over time. Uh, they, they, are more, they are stable uh, in a sense that they last maybe for several generations, but then they can also um, uh, can be replaced by others. They can be marginalized. One of the, one of the examples is uh, the, the, the shift that I already uh, referred to, the shift from the Persianate models that were popular in the 19th century by uh, the cultural models from uh, the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century. And then the proliferation of modernist European models, right? So in a way, uh, our treatment of um, models of sub subjectivity is also an attempt to go beyond or depart from the binaries of uh, traditionalism and modernism that are widespread in scholarship. All right. So we change the uh, analytic vocabulary and, and I believe also and enrich it by uh, some new insights. So then we have the third level of, uh, of abstraction which is uh, even more concrete, it is the concept of persona. And I have already exemplified it with Al-Qadri. So uh, someone is using um, templates, right? concrete, concrete templates. What is it that I want to be? Or what is it that I want to use as a mask for myself and uh, leave a trace of me in history in this form? Uh, together with Shamil Shekhalif, we have recently uh, written an article on another Muslim individual, Ghalimjan Al-Baroudi, who was uh, a mufti and an established scholar in Kazan uh, in, in, um, in, in the early 20th century. And uh, in our article, we demonstrate how his persona um, changed over time during his life. So as I told you, if the models are more durable and they last for generations, persona can change over time uh, within one's uh, lifetime. Um, this, the same thing with Al-Qadri and with Al-Barudi, we see how first in, in the initial stages of his life, he really invested into the Bukharan prestige, the Central Asian prestige of Sufism and high learning of Hanafi uh, jurisprudence and all of this. But then after his trips to the Near East, he changed uh, his uh, persona and um, tried to uh, try to um, uh, build a personal archive and a library, and even uh, a collection of hijazas, his ed educational certificates, that would portray him as a scholar of international renown, who who collected um, uh, who collected knowledge fashionable in, uh, in, in, in the later period of his time. That is Hadith scholarship, the recitation of the Quran, uh, some um, legal um, um, regulation and uh, expertise in fiqh. So 
as I, as, as I told you, even in his, during his lifetime, there is a change from one persona to another. And we can see the traces, not even the traces, but the concept of how one wanted to appear in the eyes of the future generations in the way how these individuals arrange their personal archives and even uh, separate items. So here at this stage, we go uh, down to the fourth um, layer of subjectivity, the self. It is the messy reality and uh, uneasiness that one feels when uh, one is encountered with his or her own life experience. So you can imagine how difficult it is to uh, uh, to uh, uh, find a balance in um, yeah m- multiple experiences that uh, people go through, especially in those dramatic, dramatic days. Um, how to uh, bring fragments together and uh, make sense out of them, and and basically on the level of the self, often we do not see. Uh, uh, any attempt actually to uh, of of self construction, if if self construction goes on the level of persona, there you uh, the portraiture where someone stands uh, as a, as an image, um, but on the level of the self, you see yeah uh, just the complexity of everyday life and messiness and. Um, uh, multiple multiple uh, elements going um, um, uh, being in force, and going back to your question, what models uh, were um, uh, of importance to Al Qadri's sense of the self? I told you already, Isterlibash was uh, the wonderful space. Actual setting is also uh, um, important here for the Sufi uh, models. Right, one could feel it, and one could experience uh, uh, Sufi uh, models out there. And what is cool, also cool about uh, Al Qadri's memoirs, is that there he makes references all the time to graveyards and um, uh, inscriptions on gravestones. The thing is, luckily, Vinyar Usmanov, my co-author, is uh, a historian of. Uh, Muslim graveyards in Russia, and we could, uh, yeah, we shared uh, many um, uh, sources about it and spent many uh, hours uh, talking about the history of Muslim graveyards. And this part of history, full of Sufi um, uh, uh, connotations, is heavily present in um, uh, in uh, Al Qadri's memoirs. Even though he can, one can read. Uh, his text as a reformist, modernist account, uh, in a sense that it is um, um, written in the frame of uh, yeah Eurocentric uh, uh, style or genre of uh, um, of memoirs and autobiography, but still uh, the cultural elements that are out there they are truly genuine in a way, uh, showing what was out there uh, in terms of objects and ideas uh, that surrounded. Al Qadri um, at that time.
Mm-hmm. I, I think at this point, I really want to dig in into this idea of self and the ima- the spatial and temporal imagination these Muslims have. So why don't we talk a little bit about this Muslim cosmic world? Uh, you kind of mentioned in, in, in the book is really what matters is the sense of time that the Muslims of Russia have developed over centuries. And you also mentioned that the, in the book that it, uh, this idea of time was partly in a dialogue with imperial time frames. What does uh, Abdul Majid Al Qadri's story or such memoirs tell about the sense of time these Muslims had? I mean, what is the perception perception of time in their logic and the cosmic world? Yeah, for me, the best illustration or metaphor for uh, these kind of uh, perception of time and, sp- and space is the manuscript calendars, calendars from uh, the 18th century where you can see uh, tables with three calendars being present. So first is uh, the Hijri calendar, with uh, Ramadan being there and uh, all the festivals that are of relevance to Muslims. There, like in the same uh, table, you see uh, the Russian calendar, which is referred to as Miladi, the Christian calendar with some Christian uh, festivals included, uh, as well as the Iranian calendar uh, also being there. So you can imagine that people actually lived in three uh, chronologies at the same time. And uh, that was meaningful for them. Um, And you can see how systematically uh, relevant this was for a long time, uh, when we see double uh, tarikh, that is uh, the mentioning of date, in manuscripts as well as the gravestone inscriptions. So they, they, uh, those people who uh, left those inscriptions would uh, put both the Miladi, the Christian uh, date, as well as the Muslim one. So this double um, uh, chronotope, to borrow the term, um, is really a feature of living um, in the imperial setting, which also coincides and goes hand in hand with the spatial um, uh, experience and spatial concepts. What I mean by that is, on the one hand, they were uh, ideas of uh, spaces that were perceived genuinely Islamic, such as the concept of garden, bogh, right? And I've written an article about that. Um, and one, th- those listeners who are interested can uh, check it out. Or um, the mm, fact that even in the 18th century, and right up to the 1930s, uh, the era of uh, Stalinist repressions, many Muslims in Russia uh, imagined themselves living in the um, vilayat of Ghazan. So they wouldn't. They, sometimes they would say that the place where they live is such and such governorate, referring to the Russian administrative division. But quite often, they all also say that this or that book was written in uh, uh, Ghazan Vilayata, 
um, or, and uh, there were also Darugas districts within this uh, territorial division. Or there were also reference to Jabalistan, the uh, land of mountains, that is uh, lands on the right bank of uh, the Volga River. And one can wonder what kind of Ghazan in the Russian Empire, what is it? Right. And uh, uh, if we uh, trace the history of the term, then we can see that already in the 15th and the 16th century, this was the uh, way how Muslims referred to the city of, of uh, Kazan and how they conceptualized the Muslim uh, space of it. And uh, they uh, continuously uh, imagined themselves living in this uh, Muslim environment. Uh, associated with the, the Persianate cultural models and the idea of this being this region being the Muslim frontier. So, um, uh, and associated with uh, the tradition of Gaza and Gazavat. So it was a part of, of this of this story. Okay. So this double character of um, self um, uh, self fashioning. When we live at the same, we live uh, not just in the Russian Empire and in the govern in governorates and according to uh, the um, accepted um, uh, chronology, but we live in multiple um, special settings simultaneously, and we also live in uh, uh, simultaneously in several uh, chronologies. And what this um, provides in, in individuals on, on the level of the self is, is that you can play with it, right, for your benefit. Uh, it is just a definition of performance. You can, in some writings, you can pretend to be, to, to, to live in, uh, in a completely uh, pious environment, pretending that you are part of caliphate or something like that. This is the... Um, a perception that is shared by um, uh, some scholars who insist on the autonomy of um, uh, of Muslims in in Russia. In some other so sources, the same person can um, portray himself or herself as really embedded and invested into imperial structures. Um, and our task as researchers is really to see how these multiple layers work together and how this uh, Muslim subjectivity proved to be stable and effective for um, not only just survival or struggle, you know, this is the, another binary, historiogra historiographical binary that we often come across. That the, the, the fate of, of Muslims is either to uh, struggle with, uh, with the colonial environment or to, um, uh, to be Muslim or to be... Uh, 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 integrated, which is actually not only about Muslims in the past, but part of the contemporary narratives about, about migration and uh, the place of Muslims in the West. Mm -hmm. but, and uh, you kind of really have, when analyzing the self, you bring up these complexities in the book and in other works of yours, and which is why I have purposely kind of avoided this uh, simplistic or easy classification of al-Qadri in this in this case as a Muslim reformist or jadidist. Um, and yes, while these like modern um, 
templates or conveniences, such as, let's say, newspapers or trains, were part of his life, you resist seeing this memoir exclusively through the modernist lens, which is why it brings me to the question, like, how do we fall short when we label certain Muslims or, or certain Muslim actors in Soviet Russia in the turn of the century in a simplistic manner as this? Right. Thank you for this question. I mean, I tried even to avoid the discussion of Jebedism, reformism, and all of that in the book because uh, you can easily do so. You can say, oh, this is a memoir of a Jedi because uh, it is about travel. It, about, it, it, it mentions a lot of, uh, um, about newspapers and whatnot, the role of Russian language and uh, being being part of the modernist project in, in all possible ways. But I'm trying to say that there are so many other things that can be um, uh, brought up from the narrative. And the uh, individuality of um, these people is so is much richer and, and more interested and, and touching uh, emotionally that, uh, I mean... It would be a shame to just reduce reduce it to uh, the discussion of uh, modernism, and in a way, I I perceive my um, my work not only the publication of this particular book, but also my ex- exhibitions and uh, my public lectures and working with the uh, keepers of private archives as a decolonial practice. So I'm trying to find. Um, um, uh, ways of speaking and doing scholarship other than uh, just following the modernist uh, um, uh, models and frames and um, also providing the contemporary listeners, readers, consumers of um, this cultural artifacts with alternative views on, um, on history. Because especially for the uh, populations of the former Soviet Union, there is this terrible, um, overwhelming uh, influence of the single modernist Soviet nationalist interpretation of history. When all of all of this, uh, all of the past and present is organized according to Kyrgyz, uh, Tatar, uh, Kazakh, whatever uh, national uh, forms. And here I refer back to my uh, dissertation and book, Soviet Orientalism, uh, on Soviet Orientalism in Central Asia. Well, I mean, if we are to go forward, we have to to just recognize that, first of all, our history is much richer than these simplifications uh, and national rooms and national delimitation. And that uh, the, past, the past and present can also be much richer than only the Soviet models of, uh, um, of um, uh, uh, self-expression and um, uh, historiography, okay? And, uh, it is here that I find really the uh, social relevance of, of my work and this uh, particular book as well, because uh, in a way... Um, the main audience of, of, of our publication is the family of Al-Qadri, who finally uh, received access to the book that they kept for many years. They hear the voice of their grandfather and they uh, can finally learn 
um, what he wanted to say about himself. Mm-hmm. And truly, Al-Qadri's narrative remains um, the only eyewitness account for of an educated Muslim who kind of endured this Stalinist repression. And even more, so far, uh, it seems no Muslim live narrative from late imperial Russia has been made accessible to an international audience. So this is such an extremely important work, and we really thank you for that. And it's... it's uh, I mean, the memoir itself is remarkable because it really offers a very rare glimpse into this psychological state of Muslims in the Soviet Union. Um, Anyone with an interest in Soviet history, um, Muslim subjectivity, or in general, I would even say mechanics of memoirs should definitely read this book. And uh, we are grateful to have had uh, Dr. Alfred Bustanov on our show today uh, to share his expertise and insights of, of this book with us. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, Dr. Bustanov, we would like to ask you the traditional question that we always ask our guests on New Books Network. Uh, what is your upcoming project? What are you currently working on that our listeners might be interested in? Yes. Uh, in fact, I have something to share with you because I go uh, forward with my um, um, project of uh, decolonizing knowledge about uh, Islam in Russia. And I'm now writing a book on uh, the history of state archives, uh, state manuscript collections in Russia, Petersburg and Kazan uh, in the 20th century. And I want to show um, the stories of uh, objects that made their way to these libraries and want to show all the complexity of this archival landscape that we have to really keep in mind and really be aware of when we start any research into uh, the the history of Muslim cultures. Uh, Because if we simply uh, perceive archives as um, um, sources of information, then we mm, do not understand why uh, these objects uh, ended up in, in the places where, we are, where, where they are today and what kind of politics and what kind of uh, um, violent events or uh, ideologies and agendas and subjectivities um, made these things accessible or marginal and invisible even for the uh, contemporary researchers. So this is something that you, you will hear from me more in the upcoming years. That that sounds fascinating. Uh, thank you once again for making this work, even though with eight hours time difference, I know it is getting late there in Amsterdam. Um, good luck with your work and looking forward to reading more from you. Thank you very much, Aruka. Thank you for the opportunity. Once again, this is uh, Aruki Orangze, and this was Alfred Bustanov on his new book, Muslim Subjectivity in Soviet Russia, The Memoirs of Abdul Majid Al-Qadri. Thank you for listening and have a lovely week.